Hey, everybody. This is the time of year when we remind you how you can support this podcast by becoming a member. Sign up for a monthly or annual pledge to support us directly. Just go to theincomparable.com slash members. You can sign up there and then pick the shows on the network that you'd like to support. If you just want to check the box for the main show, The Incomparable, it'll come straight to me after a few fees are taken out. But if you listen to other podcasts on the network, check their boxes too. Your contribution is shared equally by all the shows you support on the network. And as a thank you, members get a whole bunch of amazing extras. There is a members-only Slack community that is really nice. There are exclusive bonus podcast feeds, including the Bootleg Podcast, where you can hear unedited episodes of many shows right after they're recorded, including this one, so you don't have to wait weeks to hear what we're talking about. There are also bonus episodes that are posted into a special feed, which you'll be seeing a lot this month, but actually it happens throughout the year. A new Princess Bride screen-specific commentary is coming soon. There are contribution levels at $5, 10 and $20 per month. Annual equivalents are also available. We even take Apple Pay. And if you're already a member, it's very easy to increase your pledge to a higher level and get some special goodies in return. So if you'd like to support us, go to theincomparable.com slash members to sign up. Thank you for listening. The Incomparable. Number 529. August 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we're revisiting another film by Hayao Miyazaki, the classic Japanese animation director. As selected by John Syracuse, this is The Castle of Cagliostro. We're going to go with Cagliostro. Don't pronounce the G. Mm. It's Cagliostro. 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 I you listened to the dubbed version. That's what they said. Yeah, I bet, I bet they did. <laughs> <laughs> From 1979, it's his first feature film. Uh, we got a great panel here assembled to talk about it, including, of course, John Syracuse himself, because he didn't like pick the movie and then run away. Hi, John. Thank you for being here. I've been sharpening my fingertips all week in anticipation of this podcast. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a heist later, so uh, wait for it. Uh, also joining us, the panel, Aline Sims is here. Hello. Billions of goats, I think. <laughs> what? Goats? 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 Monty Ashley is also here. Hello. What's the job? That, that's a line from the movie. It is. It is. <laughs> the samurai says it. Yep. Steve Lutz is here. Hi, Steve. Hello, Hello, Jason. I'm here to rescue you from your tower prison in repayment for that glass of water you gave me once in college. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Please accept, as proof of my sincerity, this tiny rose and a small set of flags of the uh, all nations. (laughs) And Tony Sindelar is here. Hello. Hello, nerds. Which are we helping? (laughs) John, please explain why we watched The Castle of Cagliostro. As you noted, it's his first feature film. And I think we've watched so much of his work already. It's kind of fun to see. I'm not going to say like where it comes from, because as I think we'll we'll discuss, the first thing, your first role as a director, you're probably not going to have as much control as when you're a world famous, world renowned Oscar winning director many, many years later. So it's very interesting to see if you want to become Miyazaki, where do you start? You have to start somewhere, right? And so here's his first, his directorial debut in a feature film using someone else's property. As we will discuss, I think it is a weird movie and it's interesting and it's from the 70s, but it's also got little tiny touches of that Miyazaki in it. But I I swear to you, if you saw this in the 70s, you would not picture in your mind like 
this person is someday going to make Totoro and Spirited Away. You just absolutely would not. But here it is. Uh, in all its glory, I think uh, there is a lot to discuss and a lot to be confused about. Well, well I'll say. I'm <laughs> I'm confused about a lot of things. Like what I what I saw, because it was so strange. <laughs> Although, I think you're right, John. Like, I assume we all had that moment where they just casually mentioned that the Count has an autogyro, which is a wacky <laughs> flying, flying machine. I was like, oh! Oh, it is a Miyazaki movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a crazy flying machine. Of course. Of course. Lovingly rendered with some of the same sound effects. The through mm-hmm. line is kind of amazing. With uh, I, I was keeping a list of all the Miyazaki-isms in this movie, but like if you listen to the sound of the propellers whirring, like when the little autogyro lands, those sounds are right out of movies that would come out decades later. Like it's just and, and the look of it, like you mean not only the fact that it's there, but how it's drawn and how they linger on it. I, I feel like from the opening credits on, you can tell this is a Miyazaki movie. The opening credits of this, if you turn off the sound, are like the opening credits of Nausicaa. You're like, what? In this... In they this, mentioned Miyazaki for one thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> in this heist movie or whatever the heck it is, all of a sudden there's these lingering shots of a car going along a, a road at sunset with water on either side of it. Total Miyazaki move in the midst of a movie that is nothing like a Miyazaki movie yeah. in many ways. <laughs> but he had the he had the latitude in those scenes to to sort of indulge some of his his desires despite this. So so uh, for those who are more uh, and so this is probably John uh, more knowledgeable about anime, um, this is a, an installment in the Loop in the Third series, which is based on a manga and included a TV series, right? And then the, then they made a feature film. I have no background in in Lupin the Third or anything about that, but it seems like this is, you know, he basically got handed, we're going to make a movie of Lupin and the Master Thief, and you're going to direct it. I think he worked on a TV show too. Oh, okay. Right, so it, ma- it makes some sense, but the point is this is not... I mean, it's kind of weird for me to say this is not his property because Kiki's not his property and the Howl's Moving Castle is not his property. That's all true. Like the IP is not from his mind, but those are his movies top to bottom. Right. Whereas here he's starting with, you know, and even you say that like Kiki's not his character. If you compare Kiki in the movie to Kiki in the book, Kiki in the movie is his character, right? Whereas here he's he can't decide well i don't like how lupin looks or acts or talks or like it's it's an established franchise it's somebody's franchise is not on, right? sort of yeah i mean obviously the, the 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 manga is always different than the animated movie right even in his own works but i I, f- I feel like he is much more constrained by choices that other people made and and it's your first time as a director you can't just go out of left field like this is gonna be the movie where lupin dies no i don't think he had that kind of latitude right so i feel like he probably tried though <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what I know about Miyazaki. <laughs> so, Jason, uh, Lupin is like a media empire, right? Like, it's not just an anime series and a manga series. There's, like, many movies, and there's video games, and there's live-action movies, and I think there's multiple anime series. Hmm. You know, this this was, this was, you know, this is one snippet of a big, giant thing. Right, and, I, and watching this, I sort of got that sense, but I don't know any of the background. So for me, I am one of those people who looks at this and says, Lupin 3, but I haven't seen Lupin 1 and Lupin 2. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but you can still kind of feel it, like, when the cast shows up, you go, oh, okay, these are clearly the yes. supporting characters. That's actually one of the charming <laughs> moments, because the the later in the movie, and it's going to be very hard for me to summarize this movie, but la- later in the movie, the samurai guy shows up, <laughs> and <laughs> and you're watching it and like cuz you know he doesn't do very much and i think to myself oh 
he's in it. He's like in it. He's one of the characters. Mm-hmm. And they're like, mm-hmm. yay, he's here. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> it's like when okay. Lando shows up. Yeah, yeah. There, there would have been a, you know, a, a reaction from the audience when, right. when Goemon first appears, you know. Yeah. Th- this <laughs> whole movie assumes you know the character. Yeah. 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 Fuchiko is probably the one where it's like, are you supposed to know that Fuchiko is a main character? Mm-hmm. Maybe, I, maybe not. <laughs> I think it it's clear. Like yeah. when Zenigata shows up, Clearly, this is his longtime yeah. enemy. Even before his defining characteristics yeah. of all the characters is not difficult to to no. pin, no. even if you don't know anything about the franchise. Like, oh, he's chasing him. Okay, got these it. characters yeah. don't seem to have an enormous amount of depth, at least in the context of this movie. So it's pretty simple. All to of say. their backstories are shadowy and ill-defined, and it helps that it, it's um, mm-hmm. it, the, the, yeah, there are enough of these characters are kind of like archetypes in some ways, which I found comforting uh, sure. that that it makes sense. Like when the, when the uh, inspector. Uh, when Zenigata comes on screen, I'm like, okay, like I get it. He's he's always chasing the thieves, and they always get away. But sometimes yeah. they have to work together, and mm-hmm. like I get it. I get <laughs> once per movies. story. I'm guessing mm-hmm. <laughs> wears a trench coat even when it is a very sunny, non-rainy day. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> a lot of these characters are American stereotypes as yes. viewed uh-huh. through the lens of Japan, right? Because they want they want their characters to have the things about American culture that they find cool, but everything has this Japanese twist on it. So it's you know, and yep. it's very U.S. influenced. So I wanted to start. Also, this is a movie made in again the late seventies. Um, and I wanted to start. So there's a there's an opening sequence where they um, they steal money from a casino, and it turns out that they're counterfeit, and their car is full of the money, and that it's it's but it's all counterfeit. Forget it, Jason. It's goat money. Yeah, it's goat money. It might be gothic money. It's hard to say. What do they call it in the? In We're the calling it goat money on this podcast. <laughs> what are we? You're the only one who watched the goat money version. <laughs> I thought they the were version. all goat versions. I was all excited to talk about the goats, and now the Netflix version has subtitles where goat has basically been searched and replaced with gothic, which is what most people will watch. <laughs> so. All right. Well, when you're watching the Netflix version, every time you see the word gothic, replace it with goat in your head. So, so, so later, better. there's there's a scene where they're looking at the rings, and they mention, or they're looking at something as a seal or something, and they notice yeah. that it has gothic lettering that isn't used anymore. In your version, is that goat lettering? Yeah. <laughs> really? They say they say it's old timey goat lettering. Yeah, I got I got a fast forward. Maybe I don't think that's a thing. You know, this actually makes oh. a lot of sense because this movie does not have the Miyazaki staple of an off putting close up of a goat of a goat. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to fit it in somewhere. So what what I'm my point is that, that that we get this we get this like heist to open the movie and then and then we see them driving and then we're gonna get the actual like plot of the movie. Yeah. And and it's made in 1979, and I had a, I, immediately I had a first uh, impression of this movie, which is I get who these characters are because in a grand tradition, especially in the 70s, these are these are are charismatic criminals, but they're also rumpled and kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, the only cigarettes they have are smashed and curved dog ends, but mm-hmm. they're also the best in the world at everything they do. They, right? oh, yes, <laughs> also that I, it actually reminded me of Elliot Gould in, um, the long goodbye. It was a very similar kind of rumpled and, and he's a detective, but it's this, it, I, I got that vibe from it, which is that these people are slobs and they're kind of disasters, but they're also the best at what they do. And like, I felt knowing nothing about this franchise, watching it, I was, I, I had two immediate responses. One of which is, I get who these people are, which I think is a brilliantly done thing, where you get in that opening scene, like in a James Bond movie, you're like, oh, okay, this is who these people are. And then uh, the other thing that that 
I got very quickly, and this is the part that is not Miyazaki-like in a way, is I got a very strong understanding that I was watching a cartoon. And the difference between an animated film to me and a cartoon is there are a lot of Looney Tunes-ish almost mm-hmm. conventions mm-hmm. of like... of Looney like Tunes physics. You don't fall mm-hmm. until you look down yep. and, the, and you disappear with a puff of, of dust behind you. Cars do not have mass unless they need <laughs> to. Cars do not. By the end of the movie, they don't even have to explain how Lupin or Wolf, as he is sometimes called, escapes. Just mm-hmm. you get it by this yeah. point. He's incredible. They fell a million feet. They're fine. Yeah, yeah. And so th- that was a- actually early on. I was like, "Oh, this is a cartoon. Got it." And and it was great because it was like the movie was saying, um, "Please do not apply too much reality <laughs> <Yes>. to this <laughs> film. It is a ridiculous cartoon." And you also already know who these characters are. Yes. And so ca- going into it, I was like, "Is this a Miyazaki movie?" And in five or ten minutes, I was like, "This is not a Miyazaki movie in the way I think of it." No. But I get exactly what this movie yeah. wants to be. Yep, it's a Lupin movie. Yeah. Well. yeah, this is an action comedy that has little bits of Miyazaki moments in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, I, th- I think that's probably one of my favorite things about the movie is that yeah. this is one of those movies where the main character is just basically infallible <laughs> you know i mean he's a knucklehead but you you know like at every turn he's going to get out of whatever scrape he's in uh, and i find that kind of movie very soothing of this mm-hmm. the sort of ferris bueller type thing where you know the main character is never in any real jeopardy and uh, amusingly i happened to watch this on the same day that i happened to run across john wick for the first i've watched that for the mm. first time and that's that's got a lot of similarities you know you know very well that Keanu's not in any real trouble there and he has you know a handful of uh, associates that pop up and just have an image of uh, of Lupin going down into his basement and, and breaking the concrete and Jigen's bur- buried in there and he's like oh hey <laughs> let's go Jigen's deal yeah but it was a, it was all told a very satisfying day because I got to watch these characters who mm. I was not really super concerned that anything bad was going to happen to them multiple fine. times that day Lupin kills fewer people man. Yeah, maybe. at least this version of Lupin. I mean, it's hard to say. There was like a sizable tidal wave that was. I mean, caused. Yeah, if you don't yeah, count the smoking, I mean, presumably they're all going to. His extremely competent pals go out of their way not to kill people when they could. Like yes. Jigen can shoot a gun perfectly. I'll shoot the tire. Goemon has a sword that cuts through anything. He cuts their clothes and off. Can, but yeah, he can, mostly cuts just... people's clothes off while they fall. He doesn't kill anybody. No, no, we're fine. There's also those. There are the ninjas that seem to have armor underneath their ninja outfits that are really good at taking one bullet and being just mildly inconvenienced. Um, I do think Fujiko mm-hmm. kills people. I feel like yeah. this entire this entire movie is about the technology of pointy fingers as weapons, mm. which has really been developed in this castle over centuries. And I think it is underappreciated as a potential deadly uh, technique. Aline, how did you react to this being a Miyazaki movie? <laughs> I agree it had those Miyazaki moments. Like, I knew it was his in some, in you know, to some extent. Um, I liked it a lot less than pretty much every other Miyazaki property that i've seen so in that it was very different because i usually am very enamored of it um but this this one was uh not my favorite but yeah it it didn't have you know the things i look for in miyazaki are like airplanes of course but also (laughs) you know like uh fantasy elements some kind of you know like magic and we get you know delayed reality or i don't um you know, with the 
falling off the cliff, just the acceptability that this is this is going to happen. We can hand wave that away. And that is a, a, a Miyazaki thing and possibly a loop in the third thing. I don't I, I am also very unfamiliar with it. But um, yeah, I totally got Miyazaki elements out of it. I think more Miyazaki movies should have explosions and casino heists <laughs> and crazy clock tower stuff. You should see his first edit of Mononoke Hime. It is wild. <laughs> <laughs> there could have been a clock tower fight in Howl's Moving Castle. It yeah. wouldn't have been that out of place. I think these, uh, the, the what we're calling the Miyazaki moments, are very well incorporated into the movie. I haven't seen any other Lupin franchise stuff other than just like bits and pieces of the comics and stuff like that. But it doesn't feel like there's one movie taking place and then all of a sudden there's Miyazaki, then another movie. It It, it, it blends well because the pacing of the movie is fairly even like i think the soundtrack helps where you know there's going to be action and then there's going to be a chill out scene and this sort of uh laconic uh you know pair here uh not talking to each other but knowing what the other is thinking and planning the heists and looking at it from a distance and like when all that happens and you have the scene that just shows a close-up of the stones in the water with the lily pads with the feet going across it, you're, you're not jarred out of the moment because this, this whole scene is about them, yes, smoking, but also sitting around with their <laughs> hands in their pockets, not saying anything to each other, but having meaningful glances. And then and then it breaks out into a little scuffle or whatever, right? Uh, all, all the scenes are, 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 are like that. When the, the airplane takes off, it doesn't feel like you've broken out of one movie and gone to another because maybe he does have a weird airplane. And I just... This movie... <laughs> has a vibe to it like uh, you know a relaxing vibe that yeah it's a cartoon that you know you can swim through the air you can jump 100 miles because a spraying sound goes off right <laughs> um and and it's a heist and it's silly and there's all this other stuff going on and there's the police and there's a big stereotypical germanic guard and it's just it's all very silly in that way but then it's quiet and nice and the music is nice and the water is pretty and the, and the shadows of the clouds move over the fields mm. right oh, <laughs> yes, the clouds so mm -hmm. i tried uh years back uh because i've seen this movie many times go watch some other Lupin things, and it didn't really work for me. I like this movie uh, a, a lot, but the other Lupin stuff, I, I guess this movie was not super well received by Lupin fans. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lupin character is usually basically a lot more sociopathic uh, <laughs> and, and and not like not appropriate for a family friendly movie like this this particular like Castle of Cagliostro. So it's a little jarring to go from uh, whereas those fans, I guess, are jarred going from the Lupin they like who murders lots of people to this one. Uh, I was jarred by going from this to other Lupin things. So, yeah, I don't think the other Lupin movies are directed by geniuses. Yeah, probably yeah, going to be uh, a bit uh, of a come down. And yeah. and this is and this is so strange because like you would think that uh, you know in a in a more perfect world Miyazaki would be his first uh, the movie he first directs would be just something even remotely closer to anything that he does or has an interest in like and this is just so far it's, off it's a little bit like if somebody got to do a marvel movie first and then went off and did low budget art house things um, yeah, yeah. it's it, it's it's not, not just that it's a different franchise and not just that he doesn't get to define the things but just he doesn't do this kind of movie i mean he mm -hmm. you think about the the cartoon villain of the count or whatever his name is and his cartoon henchman it's like he doesn't his name's cagliostro do, <laughs> he doesn't do that um and he and yet within this framework he is able to do almost all the things that he would later right down to like you know scenes with food god how much food is there in this movie they have the the pasta they have the ramen they he got the the count taking the top off the little egg with his tiny spoon you got him shoving food in his face after he's injured but there's just yeah, get granted an anime trope but like 
he gets to do it all in the framework of this movie. And I think he pulls off a pretty good, silly cartoon heist movie on top of all of that. It's it's nonsensical if you try to describe the plot and what's going on. But while you're watching it, everything everything's fun. At least that's my experience. He does a great job. He could have had a career just doing these movies and I think would have made great these movies. Yeah, but he wouldn't be, what well, you know, like, well, like no, reasons, yeah. that was not a quote-unquote Miyazaki movie because you know what you're expecting. We've seen enough of them now that you, even when they don't work for you, that you just expect a certain vibe and this uh-huh. movie doesn't have that vibe. This yeah. movie has a different vibe. But he's so talented that his interests and, and predilections come out here, but he also does a good job with the job of doing a Lupin movie, at least as, at least again, maybe the Lupin fans don't agree, but like, I look at this and think this is kind of a work for hire, but also a Miyazaki movie. And it's an interesting combination of those things. Let me take a break and tell you about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Now, if I'm just browsing online for work or just in my downtime, I don't like the idea of everything I'm searching for being recorded by somebody. I know you're, mostly thinking that you can get away with this with browser features like a uh, secure mode and incognito mode, but that doesn't actually hide all your activity. It doesn't change your IP address. Your ISP can still look at your traffic as it passes through their network. People can match what you do to your IP address. And that's why if you want to get that level of uh, privacy, you need to try a VPN like ExpressVPN doesn't really matter who your ISP is. They can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through secure servers so your ISP cannot see the sites you visit. It keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you won't even notice that ExpressVPN is on. It runs seamlessly in the background. It's so easy to use. I use it on my iPad all the time. One tap and you're protected. In fact, I was just using it the other day because I was testing a script that involved hitting a server and I got rate limited and they said that's too many requests from your IP address and I just turned on ExpressVPN and then continued my work from a different IP address. That was really great. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, your smart TV. There's no excuse not to use it. Like I said, I've been using it for a long time. It's very convenient to have it around and be able to shift where I am and who I am whenever I want. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit expressvpn.com slash Snell right now, and you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash Snell, expressvpn.com slash Snell. To learn more, thank you, ExpressVPN, for supporting The Incomparable. I'm also not going to try to explain the plot other than to say that it involves a count in a castle and there's a princess who doesn't want to marry him, but he's going to marry her, except... And there's counterfeit money, and what more do you need to know? The Cagliostro is on top of the greatest conspiracy ever. It is a giant (laughs) conspiracy to counterfeit all money so that they have stayed... All they do is make counterfeit money, and that is how they are the richest little principality tucked away in Europe. And that's that's what is going to get blown up here by uh, Lupin and his friend and his other friend and his enemy, who is also kind of his friend. And uh, <laughs> and they they and, and his other friend, who's his kind of girlfriend, and they are they're going to uh, solve it. Um, and, and, and they do like I, I don't know what else to say. It, it is it is there. And there's like the count has an auto gyro, which is very <laughs> Miyazaki. There's a car chase, which is really great, but also defies all laws of physics, which is kind of <laughs> wonderful. But my favorite part is not just the car chase, which, like I said, it's great. 
the, my favorite part though is that the, after the cars smash up and plunge and all of these things, the next scene they're just driving the car again. And it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I love that's that. That's what happens in cartoons. You, that car is a character. You can't. It's never going to die. I feel like they rochambeaued for who would fix the car. Yes, mm-hmm. that was the flat. T- of, they have to fix the flat tire. Yeah. Again, you know, smooth out all the dents. He managed to stick in a Miyazaki ending in this movie too, which is amazing. The Miyazaki ending is, oh, the lake drains and there's a beautiful Roman city. And the music plays, and yeah, we pan over true. the city. It's like the end of Mononoke. Yeah. like, where did this come from? What the <laughs> hell? Like, I imagine most Lupin movies do not end that way. It's a treasure for all mankind. <laughs> I kept waiting for at the ending. Oh, so there's going to be like a room or a temple full of gold that he can get, right? And then the end is that they drive nope. away in their car full of gold. Nope. Don't worry about it. Everything's nope. great. Although, in a way, it's a bit of a reverse from the usual Miyazaki trope, because in his typical film, he would have the city being drowned being by... Being drowned, yes, exactly. The <laughs> by water a lake, to win. and then a tree would grow up from the center of it. Mm-hmm. No, I liked that Fujiko got loot and he didn't. That felt well, to me... She's better like, at her job. Well, yeah, yeah. she's yeah. actually trying to accomplish something instead of just faffing yeah. about with a princess. Well, like right. you keep saying, I don't know anything about Lupin except from this and what I read on Wikipedia... But it all felt like it was following Lupin tropes, even if it wasn't. Like, mm. oh, of course she got the money. I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, among the, my favorite scenes in this. So the the scene that made Lauren and I both just laugh and laugh and laugh for it was so delightful is the physics of when the water is coming down and they need yes. to get up and they <laughs> discover you can it. swim up a waterfall. Did you know yes. you can swim up a waterfall? If you just you say, well, 50, 50% of you can. Well, you that's can my really favorite hard. scene in the film because it's so ludicrous and it lasts yes. for so it's long. It's amazing. Because <laughs> you're rooting for him like, go, oh, you can do yeah. it. Oh, the water is He gets so down. close. He gets so close. Just, if, if you were in a waterfall and you swam hard enough, you could probably get to the top. <laughs> I've seen salmon do it. Yeah. Their plan broke down very quickly, right? Half of the team <laughs> it basically washes away, and and Jigen is like, "Well, Lupin doesn't die. I have to assume everything will be okay. Yep. I'll go smoke cigarettes for a day. Yep. See you later. I'm not in. The, I'm in not yet. in the movie for a couple scenes. Yeah. Take care." Also, that the you know their entire uh, labyrinth clockworks is defended by laser sentries. That's high tech in the. It's futuristic. The 70s and 80s. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, your 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 old timey ancient clock tower is defended by lasers. It's a, it's a laser castle, okay? Well, they do have a lot of money, so mm. Mm. well, fake money. Yeah, if you if you had to describe <laughs> this, like this, there's a lot going on in this movie, plot wise. Like there's like, Miyazaki actually doesn't take the easy way out and say they're going to try to steal money, and they're going to get it, and there's a princess. Like the whole Zenigata and. Uh, he wants to reveal the counterfeiting, but it turns out all of the countries in the UN are complicit in the counterfeiting. So they right. try to bury it, and they tell him he can, but it, tell him he can go after Lupin, but not the counterfeiting. So he has this ruse so that he thinks he's chasing, chasing Lupin to go down to the counterfeiting, and uh, <laughs> the what what's her name Fujiko was there pretending to be a reporter to aid and abet that after she was way, pretending to be like a secretary. <laughs> Yeah, and then the 10 years ago thing where Lupin originally tried to break into the castle 10 years ago, and that's how he met the princess and her dog, and he has a flashback to that. It's right. so overcomplicated for <laughs> what it needs to be. He totally forgot about it. Like, the implication right. <laughs> in the Netflix version of the... He does fall on of, his head a lot, Alina. Uh, yeah. okay. He goes to a the, lot of crazy places, I'm assuming. The, the Netflix version of the dub, I watched it a couple of hours ago, and... Um, he was like, I was there for days. I just remembered. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait, so you were in this grove of trees and this nine-year-old girl was feeding and like feeding and watering you like yeah. you're a horse for days. 
And you forgot about it, I guess. Tony's yeah. explanation of he falls on his head he, a lot. Does and he's a very busy. He he lives a very exciting life. That doesn't yeah. even get in the top mm, twenty. That's this, true. He has adventures like this every day. How can you keep? Track he also. Of I mean, he has that kind of duality of sometimes he's an amazing planner, but he also seems to live in the moment a lot, right? Like, I mean, they, they rob a casino, and it turns out it's fake money, and it's like, all right, road trip. Uh-huh. Let's just cruise around Check for a it. while. Yeah. Oh, now now there's there is a potential car chase. Let's pick a side. And right. this is, like, this seems good for, to keep us busy for an afternoon. It's nice to be out of the house. Let's go. <laughs> I think he's at his most competent when it's most dangerous. Yes. When he's surrounded by ninjas about to kill him, he will just smirk and vanish. Yes, but, but when there's when, one ninja, he might be in trouble. Yeah, he will trip and fall occasionally, which I find very appealing. Right. But, you know, he refuses to take the easy way. I mean, they're so mm-hmm. impressed with this counterfeit money, and it apparently is a, a big deal to fool the national casino with these counterfeit bills. So, you know, you'd think it could have been a very short movie. They could have just drove off and spent that counterfeit money. Yeah. It would have been the wiser. This but, money's counterfeit. We better move it fast. That's too easy. No, <laughs> you know? that would be ripping off the people he spends the money on. He yeah. needs to steal it from the casino. I like mm. the inspector. So when the inspector gets there, this is your long-suffering inspector who is the foil yes. for Lupin, obviously. There is a there is a, a little bit where, um, where Lupin dresses up as the inspector and then says... <laughs> I've got news. The, Lupin has dressed up as the inspector. Get him. And they're yeah. like, oh, okay. And and there's a great moment. The sound is really good in the at least the dub, which I also watched on Netflix, where you've got all the characters like, oh, we got to get him. We got to get him. And then there is underneath all of that, the sound of the inspector being like, no, what are you doing? It's not, but, but it's me. What are you doing? Yeah. And they take him away. And it's like, it's such a ridiculous uh, plan because it's literally I have a trench coat and I'm going to say I'm him <laughs> and then I'm going to say he's me and it totally works and is hilarious and I love I loved it, it maybe that's, that's because when he when he's in disguise they just draw the other yeah, guy's face it just yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Even... he seems to have a Mission Impossible style yeah. mask that he's <laughs> never mentioned it's like, it's like wait a second this is animation just draw my face different mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like that the inspector is clearly very competent himself like he figures out that Lupin mm-hmm. will be coming up to the fountain Lupin chooses to team up with him when they're in the sewers. So even though Zenigata never catches him, he gets honored. He gets to solve a case during the movie. Yeah. I don't know what the subs were. What I don't know what the Japanese dialogue sounds like, but the English dialogue of two different dubs I've seen of this movie, he has a great time saying, what's this? Why, it's money. Counterfeit money. Yeah. Why, I came in after Lupin and found this. I enjoyed that moment. It's also like that in the subbed version mm-hmm. where you like, even I, as someone who speaks no Japanese at all, could tell that it was a very over the top, like stilted performance. Yeah. And the guys at the yeah. UM are saying, are saying, what a ham. <laughs> I'd like to give it a, sh- a shout out to this uh, ridiculous European castle that has oh, a zillion trapdoors, a, a, yeah. a, a crypt. With, with cameras over them. It's got a crypt, a church, and like uh, like uh, catacombs underneath. Uh, so yeah. it's got a moving tower part to go out to your evil tower with a fancy room with a bed way in the middle of it mm-hmm. uh, where you keep nin- ninjas door. behind all of the columns. It's it's great. Um, I appreciate that nobody ever goes down to clean up the 400 years of corpses that yeah, have been under the castle. No. Yeah. That's why you get a big castle. There's a guy with a crown. I, I, yeah, I love the two. I think the implication there. was that was the king. So yeah. that, that he, yeah, yeah, I think it even had a name tacked to it to suggest that basically he this had all been arranged. Yeah, they right. tossed the king down. I also like that that's, so that's the castle of Cagliostro, but when they get there, 
when they drive up to Cagliostro, what they do is they go to the ruins of the castle. So they yeah of the castle, and there's the caretaker there who's like, oh oh, why are you here with with the the? It's just me, and the the ruins are here from the war. But what you want is the actual castle, which is right no, there. The, the <laughs> fire. Jason, they, they went to the royal palace, yeah. not oh. the castle of Cagliostro. It yeah, would become the... the royal palace once he marries yeah. the princess. But those okay. are definitely two different places. I know. It's just it's a funny moment where you're like, oh, this this creepy ruin is the castle. And the, the, the caretaker's like, nah, you want that one. <laughs> <laughs> like, done, Second castle from the left. Second, yeah. <laughs> you might have seen it out in the water. It's kind of hard oh. to miss. Here in a principality so small, it's not on maps. <laughs> so good. But they're rich. And if you're rich, you got castles. Your chief export is counterfeit bills. It's just wall-to-wall castles. So what I'm saying is this movie is ridiculous and I I really enjoyed how ridiculous it was because again I was like okay it's a cartoon uh, there's no realism here and then it's got uh-huh. like every trope from like eight different kinds of story and yeah, they're all I mean, just there's James in. Bond tropes stacked mm-hmm. on top of uh, presumably castles, tropes from Lupin on top of movies, uh, yeah, how, Jap- yeah, how the Japanese view Samurai. America, how they view Europe, yeah. how they Fujiko you know. literally looks through the eyes of a painting at one point. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, I will say the the unfortunate part of it is it is also the princess in the castle, the passive princess in yeah. the castle is. Yeah. What this Although she does, is. we she do meet does her driving a driving a car. Like the Miyazaki of trying to make the women remotely competent, he tries. He you know doesn't doesn't do a great job here but she the first the first scene you see her she is running from them with her veil trailing behind her driving the car herself right yeah. then she but faints the second behind scene the wheel yeah. so not so great there are uh, two but, women one of them's competent yeah right and, and yeah. fujiko is fujiko is great and you know doesn't uh, doesn't seduce anybody at any point so plus there right um, but yeah, the, the princess is mostly just like the villain. The villain is just monstrously Wah-ha-ha. evil and, yeah. and, and his henchman is the, you know, like it's, yeah. it's very, and so she's the princess, but I, I do like that she doesn't spend the entire time screaming for Lupin to save her. She's mostly, she is passive, but you can tell that she is both smart and vaguely competent. She is just a victim of the plot. Well, I mean, she wasn't so passive that she didn't take off when the, she was left alone in her bridal uh, gown in the early Yeah, part. no, that's right. what I'm saying. You, you, meet, you, you meet her as trying to escape, but then she's just in the tower with her hands clasped. Mm-hmm. In the her. wedding, she just gets grabbed and carried around a bit. Yeah. Well, she's, yeah. she's I been drugged. One though. line that she's been drugged or something. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. she's been she's been drugged was why she's passive. Your silence will be considered. But that is, you know, that yeah. is a choice they made in the story is like you're going to be drugged and not doing anything yeah. for a lot of that, the scenes. You're that in. wedding. Speaking of tropes. This is the mm. creepiest wedding ever. It's like gothic horror. <laughs> like they've got yeah. the people, like the people with the pointy dark hats and the giant swords. John, I think you mean goat horror. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I do mean goat horror. And it was it, oh, goats all over that place. They're all on the, all on the symbol. Like the, talk about those poor guests. The guests think they're coming to a wedding at a castle, and then this is what happens. These guys in these like black KKK outfits come out they're, with they're these huge broadswords. And and he, he's he's uh, all hidden in this cloak, and then he opens it up, and it's red on the inside, and she has to stand there with the glazed expression on her face, and then the Lupin puppet gets stabbed. But yeah, it has real Manos, the hands of fate, kind of feel <laughs> to it. It, it, you can tell that uh, the the count has a real flair for the theatrical because that wedding was, and you wonder what the first wedding was like because she was <laughs> fleeing in her wedding dress like was this take two she was fleeing like, the fitting she was the fitting, fitting yeah right. oh yeah. it was the fitting yeah. anyway and this this mm-hmm. is very dark like it's the it's the darkest wedding I've ever seen especially when the the groom has a giant goat mask on that's <laughs> that's <laughs> deal breaker is all I'm saying there's, there's a lot of eyes yeah. wide shut vibes going on at that yeah. wedding. 
And ultimately, I think this is why I didn't like it, is that it's not that that she didn't have any agency at all, but it was, it did have a lot of that, uh, I don't know, your princess is another Another, in another mm -hmm. castle type feel to it. And, um, I guess I'm just used to having a little bit better representation in Miyazaki movies. And I know like late seventies, uh, I know that this wasn't his property. Like I get all of that, but it really like, I just expect more from my media at this point in time, you know? I mean, he did write this and that character does not get to do much. Right. And even Fujiko is not super integral to the plot. Right. I mean, I love how non integral she is to the plot. I think that's (laughs) a really interesting aspect of the movie that Fujiko not only has her own scam completes it, and just ignores. Yeah. She's, she's, she's in a, she's in a different movie, starring in her own movie, right? Exactly. Now. Yeah, but, but we're just, not we watching only, that movie. We only get to see glimpses. of And that I got to tell you, I'm almost more interested in what her movie is like, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, because she's clearly yeah. super competent, and yeah. I love the fact that when she's she's there, she's doing her thing, and then as soon as Lupin shows up, she's like, "Oh, these guys are going to screw up everything." Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. she's working an elaborate long gone that they blunder into. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like that happens a lot. And then she comes back with a transparent disguise, just ditches it right away. <laughs> I think she's a really good news reporter, too. Well, and I love it because she's like the proto April O'Neil. She's yes. got like April's <laughs> jumpsuit, mm-hmm. but not yellow, pink, and like the the fluffy hair, but in a different color. And I was like, so is this what they got her look from for April O'Neil? Like, where did, I don't know. Did reporters in the 70s and 80s wear colorful jumpsuits all the time? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, a lot they, of people wore jumpsuits in the 70s. They got her look because Eastman and Laird found jumpsuits easier to draw. So one <laughs> long line on the upside. I do, uh, there's a moment, uh, toward the end where she basically like they're like oh we're up in this tower and we're gonna fall down or we're gonna have to run run along the side of it again against the laws of physics but they do that Mm -hmm. and she and she's like oh do you guys not have the uh hang glider in your backpack (laughs) that you're just gonna use to fly away no all right well later yeah her action figure comes with a lot more than theirs too apparently you can owe me see ya and that's right after she was definitely machine gunning and grenading cars yeah that's a that's just it's a great moment where where i was like oh she's got a hang glider she's out of here it's like yep yep because she knows she's playing this she knows what she's doing but uh it's true she's in a a different movie from what these these Mm -hmm. knuckleheads are but again that's to me that's part of the appeal and and how it feels so kind of like comfy and well worn is that these guys work together and they they as Steve said they're never really in any danger and you know yeah. it's going to work out but you also know that they're knuckleheads and it's not going to be easy and they're going to have to like kind of figure out a way out of it and th- and that's what they do and so that's that's kind of part of the comfort comfort of it is that they're not super competent that there there will be twists and they will do dumb things but in the end they'll they'll figure it out and they'll work it out the signature lupin moment to me is 
he's he's climbed up to the tower and he's looking across at the the tower that the princess is locked up in and oh, it's yeah. like this spire that like has these like convex curves to it and there's no way to get it and he's got his little grappling hook and he's arranging a firecracker perfectly and he's gonna fire it over there and then it like kind of slips and he stumbles down the st- the roof the slanted roof to get it and he he slips more and he's basically accidentally gets a running start that allows him to jump over to there jump. that is the the signature lupin moment is he's not actually in danger and will in fact bumble into the thing when his careful plan to get there fails yeah. i felt like that was miyazaki having having the most fun with that character because like the the the, the thing that he's got it's like a firecracker and but it is a string and he drops the thing accidentally but then he grabs the string to try to get it but of course it just makes more string come mm-hmm. out right it's just such a sort of frustrating bumbling like not only did you mess it up but every attempt you make to recover from it just makes it worse and then the running is what jason was getting apart with the physics it was like it doesn't make any sense even if you squint it doesn't even make sense on a road runner. like because because it's a long hill he's just running so fast and then, and then they make that jumping sound of spraying uh-huh. and his legs are like 12 feet long at that point right and then they just scroll the background really fast and then he's Flats against the other wall. That's all right. Well, Lupin is basically like two tiggers stuffed inside James Bond. A- and, and we don't mind him climbing up sheer rock faces over and over again. Strong fingernails. I was thinking kind of a, a wily e. coyote character, except with a little bit better luck. But yeah, mm. pretty much. That's that's who this yeah. character. And, and there are there are this weird. They also he also tries to have some dramatic moments of this. Like so, there's the, the cartoon moments. But think about like at a certain point, like oh now the violence is getting real because they're being machine gunned by the evil henchmen and giant chunks of rock are blowing off. That was also also one of the scenes where the the princess gets a chance to actually do something where she she shields his body with her body to try to keep him. Why why she does that? God only knows because there's no chemistry between them at all. But whatever, she she decides this person she just met she's going to protect him by covering his body and then uh, tries to extract a promise to spare him and does all like she actually does something in that scene while he's basically unconscious just yeah, she keeps him from sliding to his death in the first place yeah the only reason he doesn't go flying off the roof yeah. and 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 that moment is not like they want you to go from okay you were in the silly cartoon we oh, suddenly this is a serious moment like i i think they manage those shifts in tone reasonably well like they do kind of have a few dark moments but then you know once lupin is conscious again he just smiles and like we're in a dungeon but i'm lupin you know so all right it's a little it's a little surprising when he wakes up injured because up to that point he has been fine 10 minutes after whatever happens to him. well he does the anime trope of your entire body being covered in bandages which just to show that you're really injured and then Mm -hmm. then the trope of eat lots of food yeah he just needs a couple chicken legs and he's it's very princess bridey that whole segment to me Mm -hmm. where Oh, I'll go with you, but leave him alone. Of course I'll leave. Hey, but don't trust the bad guy. Come on. You've seen, have you seen his outfits? He's very evil. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at the way he talks. His, his mouth doesn't even open properly. <laughs> yeah. Not like yeah, our oh, hero whose mouth yeah. can Speaking Speaking of that, like, okay. Right. So you, you, this is someone else's property. This is also someone else's budget. There's a certain amount of money and time allocated to a Lupin movie. Uh, and as much as Miyazaki wanted, might have wanted to make those the shadows of the clouds going over the field look ten times better... <laughs> The amount I was trying to look up how long, like, you know, say, how long did it take to make Princess Mononoke a spirited away versus how long did it take this movie? These movies were done in an incredibly small amount of time. And if you pause this movie in any frame, you can see the money that they didn't spend. 
Like it, it's animated well, but no one is painstakingly painting these amazing backgrounds that you're going to dynamically fly through. Like the character, uh, you know, shading, the detail on, on, on all of the things they interact with. There's a few scenes where you see a little bit of money, like he's he's smelting some silver thing to make the fake rings and there's a little bit of excessive detail. But, you know, just take any frame of this movie and put it next to any frame of a, a latter day Miyazaki movie and you can see, oh, the budget later would be 10 or 20 times this, and they would take, you know, five times as long to make. Um, so he, that, that kind of constrains him to do simpler, you know, simpler frame, simpler frames of animation, simpler scenes, not, you can't have a scene of Chihiro walking through a giant field of flowers. Like you don't, you can't do that. We don't, we're not, we can't draw that. Even when the money's going out of the car, it's like basically, a big river of white with some rectangles drawn in it. Like they couldn't even be bothered to to animate the individual bills because that would just be too expensive and we don't have that kind of time. So it's interesting to see what what he can do with extremely limited time and resources and no ability to get more of them because he's Miyazaki and where he chooses to spend his money. Like I said, you, so, you, so you're going to spend your time uh, uh, drawing the intricate details of his little smelting operation to make the fake ring, that's where you're going to spend it. Miyazaki's like, yes, and that one and the and the, and the scene of walking across the, the stones with next to the lily pads. He didn't yet have a studio full of people who revered him and would work themselves to death just to make him happy. He didn't have five years to make a movie. <laughs> it's like this whole thing, you got five months, you got this much money, go. Uh, and, you know, being on, you know, on time and under budget was probably a lot more important back then. So I, it, it is... It is incredibly jarring to see. I'm not going to say the low quality of the animation, but it's like, oh, his shirt is literally all one color. Like, they just painted his whole shirt that color. Like, you'll never see that again in another Miyazaki movie. I think it's the appropriate level of detail, though, because like Jason was saying, this is a cartoon. It's not animated cinema. It's it's yeah, fast right. moving. It's action scenes. But but you know what his inclination is? Like he'd want, he right. wants he wants to do much more detail, right? And he can't. A lot of you times, time. I think it's good for artists not to be able to give in to all of their inner urges. Mm. Turns out it was good for Miyazaki, but <laughs> <Right>. some people. <laughs> although this is my favorite Miyazaki movie. Interesting. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, I no, think okay. it is. Monty to lean fight. <laughs> I think it is fun. I think it's funny. I think there's lots of cool action sequences, and there are not that many cool action sequences in other Miyazaki movies. Um, Nausicaa. I will take your word for that. <laughs> you haven't seen that one? Oh, my goodness. I have seen like four Miyazaki films. Oh, and this okay. is the one right. I have seen. Oh, it feels okay. better now. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm better. We don't have to do dance off in front of the Space Needle now. It's fine. Because the other movies I saw didn't make me want to see more. Ah. Anyway, there there are there are uh, Miyazaki movies with action scenes that are also very good and uh, I will say this is the one I've seen the most and, and, and better looking. Yeah. Sure, uh, delivery scenes, for example, by Kiki. I, I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying is she also makes a cake. Mm-hmm. Ooh. <laughs> uh, and a fish pie. Japane- mm. Japanese beautiful idyllic scenery is not as fun for me as ninjas and a guy with a grappling hook in his belt with a million miles of rope in it. How do you feel about the end of the world? (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right. We, we we know what's, what, uh, 
what side of the grappling hook Monty's bread is buttered on. So. <laughs> I enjoy that this is a world where where clock towers are guarded by lasers, and yet he has a hand crank in his belt for his mm. grappling hook. Yeah, the the, 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 the physics and geometry of that hand crank in his belt are are fascinating. Yeah. Some kind yeah. of like black hole there where time and space fold on <laughs> yes. themselves, and he's able to turn a one inch long. Was a, a transitional time and he can turn a one inch long crank and reel in five feet of, of string. Like the the gear ratios, it's just it's extremely. And he manages to stay confusing. completely upright instead yeah. of dangling mm. from his belt buckle. Mm. It's a very tight belt too. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the end the the shot where the count meets his final fate. Uh, though though I guess being like technically PG, the sound effect for it is harrowing yeah I mean, that follows up a scene where people die in clock gears i mean they kind yeah. of turn the camera away but yeah. it's not it's not a good way to go why did they even have the clock do that like yeah there's a lot of gears in that in that clock. opening they the re- dam is a separate operation yeah. for moving the hands around as based on i mean clock towers based on like sherlock holmes movies the great mouse and detective uncharted the batman Four. episode with the clock king clock towers are incredibly dangerous <laughs> um yeah, and, and like they're just one fight away from all falling apart into pieces. Do you know how many people are maimed in clock towers every day? I saw Goofy almost killed by a mainspring once. He wrecks that clock tower, but then the, the mechanism with the goat eyeballs works perfectly fine after he's wrecked the entire interior of the yes. clock. That's some amazing engineering redundancy. They know what look. they are up to. It's like, look, yeah. someone might come in and they might wreck this clock tower, but those goat eyes got to work. So make sure every system is... Tr- Triple redundant. Yeah, there's a lot of redundancy. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why they put the lasers in. Yeah. I was like, do they have to put the goat eyes that high up? This is well, really they, they made the little ledge for it. You could see, like in a video game, is in a fort. They could have put a railing. They could have yeah. put a railing on that ledge. Is what yeah. I'm Honestly, saying. there's just one spinning shaft in the middle of the clock tower that's doing everything. Everything mm. else is just ornamentation. Sure. Mm. I was going to say, Tony, the reason that the, the gears crushed the people in the Clock King episode of Batman the Animated Series is because they loved this movie and they put that scene in there. I so, know. Yeah. It's, 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 this is why all of those people get crushed. Animated all, people. All later Clock Towers, this is the fault. This is, yeah. Yeah. If, they, if, you, if you're hanging from the outside, it's Harold Lloyd. Mm-hmm. If you're crushed by the gears on the inside, it's the castle of Cagliostro. That's all there it's is. If you survive the gears, it's modern times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Chaplin reference. That's or it's right. earlier in the castle of Cagliostro. Or it's Lupin did it. Sure. All right. What have we not talked about in this movie? Because again, I I, I don't I don't even know. Like it, it's it's there's a lot of stuff and it's silly and it's fun and I I don't know if I have anything more that I have left to say. So I I throw it out to all of you. What what else do we need to mention? I think Gooeymon's real cool. Like <laughs> a, a samurai who barely talks and can quick draw, that is calculated to appeal to me and a lot of other people. <laughs> like, I know he doesn't do anything. And he seems more inclined to remove his enemy's clothing than actually harm them in any way. Well, he's got that great line to where he is like, it's such a waste that I'm using my sword against inanimate <laughs> objects and not, you know. <laughs> Some other samurai, presumably. Fujiko's in her own movie, but I don't know what he's in. He's on vacation, maybe. Like he's gonna. Take they are. Pictures. I mean, his his little gang is the best sidekicks. They do not like get in the way anyway. They don't have their own personality or interests. They're just like we're here when you need us, Lupin. I think they do have personality, and I know Jigen and Guiman both don't talk, 
but I feel like they have different energies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really love the scene where, where they scuffle because uh, Jigen is not being told the whole story by Lupin. I, I really enjoy that, that whole sequence where he kind of wanders by and he sits down and he lights his cigarette and you can tell Lupin knows that something's up because yeah. he's looking sidelong at him. And then suddenly they're in like a, 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 a say uncle kind of fight, which yeah. is it's just hilarious. I, I love that whole sequence. Yeah, and when and when Grimon shows up, you know, it, it like I said at, at at the beginning of this episode, it does feel a little bit like, hey, he's here, and and it's like contractual obligation to appear. But I'm not going to do. I'll I'll do something. You know, just wait, <laughs> folks. I'll do something. But he, he no, mostly it, just stands and looks across the way at the clock tower. Yep. But, mm-hmm. but yep. he does it well. But he's you there. Need yeah, he's, to do that. Sure. He's Pencil, ready. He's silent. ready when he's needed. Yeah. Well, he doesn't get cold. There's that. Yeah, all of them not clearly none of them have day jobs that they are missing work for um they don't seem to have a lot of family commitments and they're content to just like yeah let's just hang out in this ruins looking through binoculars passing the time this is this is great yeah. as long as we are not you running eat, out of cigarettes of ramen. yeah cigarettes and ramen that's all we need let's do this <laughs> it's a very picturesque country he's brought us to mm-hmm. they show them in the car at one point and there's a shot where you can see some of the stuff that's in the car and it's just a bunch of cans of tuna and like ramen packets yeah like, right you know the food the food in this movie is very accurately and, and lovingly portrayed and it definitely tra- has the most uh consistency and continuity of anything in this movie which is also a Miyazaki thing. Yeah and, yeah, and the other Miyazaki thing that I noticed is the um is the loving detail of European landscapes mm-hmm, and buildings, mm-hmm. and that's a Miyazaki thing where we yeah, see in several of Roman his movies. Roman for no reason at the end. He is yes, he is fascinated by <laughs> that, and and you see that in in several of his other movies where he's he's taken uh, stories or or fairy tales or whatever from from Europe, and he has this kind of idealized European landscape that he likes to do, which is why like Kiki is basically in Sweden uh, because he likes those those buildings and those uh, those those uh, countrysides and it's a different kind of thing for him he likes the J- Japanese countryside too but he has a thing for that and so when they're driving around and we get and we see the castle and all of that is is right up his alley too it's it's more more of the uh, recognition of who this guy who directed this movie oh this is a Miyazaki isn't it yes it is yeah, he always does like all of his sort of European cities are always an amalgam. Like it's yes. always it's always this weird mm-hmm. remix of Sweden with a little Austria, but a little bit of Japan thrown in. Like it's it's mm-hmm. a Europe that never existed, it just exists in his head. And this place is you know he gets to make up a fictional place, but it's it's, it's very similar to that. And the town scenes, like uh, you know the when they're in the. I think when they're having the spaghetti and meatballs, I can only identify the scenes by what they're eating. And the spaghetti and meatball scene, the outside of that, uh, later in Castle in the Sky, the sort of town scenes look very similar. That's, you know, Castle in the Sky is another similar weird European amalgam shoved into a totally incongruous landscape with right. the, Cause, the mountains and Lupin and the valleys. starts in like a 19, the, the 70s, basically, mm-hmm. and then like journeys back in time almost to, to whatever's going on. Yeah. But with lasers. Yeah. Like it's like there's old timey castles and guards, but also ninjas and lasers. And we got, we got some guns when we really need them. And an auto gyro, whatever time yeah. period yeah. that <laughs> is. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Parallel universe, <laughs> 1950s. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. James, he didn't manage to get any Zeppelins in this one. No. Later, no. later in his career, he'll do that. Um, I think the, the, the most interesting thing about this movie for me is, like I said, it's the, it being Miyazaki's original movie and how, how it differs from like, he's such an auteur now. It's like, Oh, it's all him and his vision and, you know, his studio. And it's like, he can do anything he wants. Um, 
And some people that end up that way also start that way. Like we, I think we watched, did we watch the voices uh, of distant star on, on this podcast? Yes. I think maybe we did. I I think so. Anyway, that was like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Episode 306. What's the director's (laughs) name of that? It's escaping me. You knew that off the top of your head. It's amazing. Uh, uh, Makoto Shinkai, Shinkai, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was his first thing. Uh, but it was his very first thing was all him. He just did it all himself, did all the animation, all the, the, the audio, all just everything himself. And you could tell, you would think that Miyazaki would be like that too. It's like, I, I'm an auteur. I, I have a vision for what is or Hitchcock for that matter. I know exactly what this is going to be like. It's all me. Uh, and even though it'll be lower budget and not as good because I'm young and inexperienced, it will, it will have that vibe. Whereas Miyazaki did not start that way. He started in sort of the system. I'm going to do what you have to do to be an animator. I'm going to work on television shows and do whatever animation it takes to make and work my way up and get to the point where I'm finally able to do the thing where I make all the decisions. And as was noted earlier, sometimes it doesn't go so well for some people, but like most, most authors, you think Kubrick, uh, Hitchcock, uh, you know, Makoto Shinkai, uh, any any of the big uh, you know Japanese animation directors, you don't picture them sort of doing like I don't know day job type of work. Like I'm going to work my way up in in the system in the industry, doing work for other people. Even things like uh, what, Future Boy Conan, uh, I think was that a Miyazaki thing as well. Like just generic cartoon TV stuff. Uh, the job you have to have, the jobs that you have to do before you get to the point when you finally get to make your Totoro or Nausicaa or whatever. And it takes, you, you know, it takes a long time. That's sort of like your reward. And then to have an amazing career after that, where it just, you know, decades and decades of being able to do that and being successful at it. It's such a weird journey. And this movie stands out as like, like a signpost that you don't have to insist on being the singular vision from day one, that there are other paths to get there that you can put in your time and, and be a cog in the machine and gain experience and do a good job at that and eventually get to do your weird things. I guess the U.S. equivalent to it was people doing movies for Roger Corman for nothing and then turning out to be like James Cameron or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, exactly. Like, we, you know, you, you just hear of them when they make their first good thing, but it's his, you know, Miyazaki's first thing done essentially for other people according to other people's whims. I think it's also good in ways that make you understand that he was going to really be great someday. Yeah, so I had not seen this uh, prior to a couple of nights ago when I watched it twice, as I do. Uh, Although I had played through it a couple of times in my youth as the game Cliffhanger, which was one of those uh, terrible, wonderful Laserdisc games uh, that came and went so quickly. Um, But uh, I was trying to figure out after I watched it, you know, where would I rank this if I had to? I, I think that's a difficult thing to do because to some extent this is really an apple to the bucket of oranges that is the rest of his uh the rest of his uh, his canon but i i really enjoyed it i thought it was a lot of fun um you know we've, we've discussed how sort of wacky it is um I, but i don't know if i'll revisit it much and i think the reason is and it's and this goes back to what you guys were saying about this plot being being convoluted to me the plot of this movie for a Miyazaki film is totally straightforward. <laughs> There's no like bizarre nature God that comes out of nowhere and like where he steps stuff grows. There's no, no face that doesn't really have any kind of meaning behind it. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack in the other Miyazaki films that will, that will 
get me to go back and revisit them just so I can see if I can make more sense of it. Whereas this, you know, it's a little caper film. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Uh, but I don't know if it's something that I'm going to feel like I have to revisit over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a you know, probably super much of a simple case to say, oh, it's made for kids. I hate when people say that because it's not but like what, but what I think they mean a lot of the time is that there is nothing in this movie that, uh, includes subtext or sophistication that will be lost on children and like there are lots of movies that include that type of stuff like oh kids won't understand this part but the movie can still be great for kids because they don't have to to like the movie but this movie literally doesn't have that like no character's motivation and thoughts and feelings are any more complex than a kid will pick up like there is you know there is no deeper subtext or message or sophistication or commentary except for maybe the other countries in the UN being complicit in the in the uh, you know sort of a cynical worldview of <laughs> there's of, something of, here about the one world government that you're supposed to take out of this. yeah I don't, so, yeah right. but even that scene is uh, the inspector got taken yeah. off the case by bad right. guys that he and, solves yeah. it anyway and so yeah. in that way it is a simple movie you know made to uh, be uh, to fit well with the sophistication of a child and that doesn't mean you can't enjoy it you totally can but in terms of revisiting it's like well is there anything deeper that I'm going to get from it. The only thing I could say you could get from this is the the sort of meditative bliss of just those few scenes where it's sort of calming and there's, you know, the the sun-dappled scenery or the just watching the credits of the little car going over the pink sunset or whatever, but that's it. And and honestly kids can get that stuff too. And so it's less sophisticated. The animation is less sophisticated, the drawing is less sophisticated, the music is less sophisticated, and every single character plot point and emotion and story beat are less sophisticated even though they are overly complicated and there are lots of characters and moving parts you don't get lost in them and you're certainly not confused like so this is real world there's no magic miyazaki's made movies with real world with no magic are they simple no look at the wind rises there's this whole extended dream sequence thing that spreads through the whole movie with this weird italian uh, aviation guy and walking along the wing and having these philosophical conversations and flashbacks to your mother german guys eating the shrubbery right that's in a movie in a, in a where there's no magic in the real world with historical events and it still manages to be bizarre and strange and gives you things that you don't think you entirely absorb or understand in first viewing this movie does none of that right so i you know i've i've seen this movie maybe three or four times but it's not a movie that i think about in fact the main context in which i've been thinking about this movie is when i'm going to spring it on you all right when <laughs> when because because i know we're watching all these movies and i basically did them in the order that i like them with my favorites going down to my last favorite and but like this one i'm like maybe i should start with this one to be like they'll be bowled over by the later movies because this is so unlike them in many ways or you know or maybe you know like but in the end like i i just kept putting it off because i'm like I, I felt like there was more meat on the bones of literally every other movie <laughs> even if even if you hate it or, or or love it or whatever there there's just so much more there oh yeah whereas yeah. this is, is very is very simple and at this point in our trip through the miyazaki stuff i felt like it would be an interesting sort of palate cleanser mm -hmm. reset because i think yeah, the last one we did really was the wind rises which is like very you know very heavy. dark and and, yeah. and weird and heavy and it's his latest film or whatever and this is just like let's go all the way back to the beginning to this weird thing and you know i, I you know i think it that's that's sort of where i ended up having to fit in mostly because i just every time the option came up i always had to pick one of the other ones but i feel like now is the time to look back at this curiosity yeah, I think that was the right approach because I, if you, I think if you'd started with this, I might have been less inclined to continue. 
yeah. than when we started off with Totoro. That said, there are certainly times when I just want to sit down and watch a wacky caper film where a guy yeah. swims up a waterfall. So mm-hmm. I may go back to this. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I like this movie. No one would ever watch it if the guy who made it hadn't made much more interesting, rich, and adult movies later on. But I do think he made the best possible version of what this movie is. Yeah. It might have been like a cult a cult classic cuz sometimes people someone does yeah. something and they never they never get to go on and do the better stuff and all they all you have is that one time they got a shot and that thing that they got a shot with is like, "Ah, eh, it's all right, but you see these glimpses of what they could have been in it." But, you know, it it could have been that. But do you think you'd pull those glimpses if you didn't know what the Miyazaki tropes were? Like Yeah, that that's the that's the question. It, I'm trying to think of some uh, equivalent works, man. I don't know. Maybe something like I'd have to know the people involved, but like there are some things that just never went anywhere. Like, what, who did Raymond Williams' The Adventure Begins? Who, who's behind that? <laughs> uh, Joel Gray. Uh, like, so there are things like that movie. You know, it's, it's a silly movie, whatever. But there are elements of that movie that show a little something extra, yeah. right? Like a little. There's a little bit more there. You're like, huh? That's actually like that. That's weird and interesting and and unexpected. And you would have said, well, what could you know? I remember that movie, that silly, you know, eighties nonsensical. What is it? A superhero? I don't know what the hell it is, right? I remember it because of the oddball elements. Even though, as far as I know, the 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 creative team behind that never went on to make you know these great things later. So I think I would remember this movie as having some strange. Some, some some strange little extras. Maybe I'd forget. I wouldn't remember the title. I would certainly not seek it out. But I'm like, this is one movie I saw that had this weird stuff in it. And there was there was goat money. And there was <laughs> someone got killed by a clock. And there was some weird stuff going on. And I would, I would have a vague memory of it. It turns out Guy Hamilton had directed some James Bond movies, including Goldfinger. But that was before Remo before Williams. Before Remo Williams. But after Remo Williams, he was, he was approached to direct Batman and turned it down. So and now this is the Remo Williams episode of The Incomparable, I guess. <laughs> Let's talk Joel Gray. That was weird. Again, another movie that involved fingers as weapons. There we go. Nobody got to make the connection. Lupin wears the same suit the whole time. But, he, it, it, you know, it's not just he's a cartoon character. He appears in one outfit so much as Lupin, the character, owns one suit. And he is he's been living in that suit for for a week. And yes, he has jumped into a moat and been in a in a uh, catacombs and he smells it. Um, He's got one suit. He also has a perfect disguise for another character. Yes, yes. But never mind. And a, well, it's his arch and enemy. a skin diver outfit. Yeah. That's why he's only got room for the one suit. He That's has right. a whole wardrobe of, uh, of disguises. Trench coats. But he does not wear <laughs> as clothes, only as he's got a lot. He's got an extensive gadget kit for making fake fake rings and other things. Yep. So I don't think know. that heist at the beginning went very well. They're being chased. They're yes. running out, just holding a big trash bag of, of money. money. They didn't uh-huh. have yeah. a car full of money, so that's actually <laughs> they didn't even like... they didn't even park very close to where they had, were going to yeah. lower no. themselves. They had to jump all those good in cliffhanger. You have to hit the foot button several times to hurdle <laughs> things before you can get yeah. to your car. And a guy yells, "Jump!" when you do it. Mm. Oh man, it's a weird. Even for a laser disc game, it is a weird <laughs> game. <laughs> but they pre-planned. I mean, those cars were sawed in half. Mm. Yeah, there was a lot. I, I appreciated the comic, the comic uh, expertise. They didn't just want to disable the cars; they wanted to embarrass them. <laughs> well, yeah. they leave a note. That's the Lupin thing, right? There'll be a yeah. note under the hood. To- I appreciated that the note. final car falling apart was accompanied with a boing sound. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like Jason said, uh, this scene is establishing the rules of this world. Yep, it is a boing world. <laughs> it's a get boing on board. World. Yep, it's a boing Do boing 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 world. <laughs> One thing I I did know about the 
the Netflix version, whatever they have, the subs versus the dubs, is in the dubbed version, the princess is away at college. In the subtitled version, she is in a convent and was recently brought back. And I was like... Those are two entirely, <laughs> like, entire different tones for yep, the movie. Yeah, depends on which college you go to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> All right. Well, this wraps up the the latest. This is, I, again, I, I agree with everybody, sort of not a movie that I necessarily think can hold up to the level of detail of scrutiny that some of the other Miyazaki movies like them or not do. But I also found it very enjoyable of, you know, for what it was. So it was enjoyable to to. Do this, as John said, palate cleanser of a Miyazaki movie. Uh, with all of you, Aline Sims, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. John Syracuse, thank you for selecting the movie. I can't wait until all the water drains out of this podcast to reveal <laughs> the beautiful, poignant city below, it's, which serves no purpose other than to sparkle in the sun. It's just truly, really, this podcast is a treasure for all mankind. It's <laughs> just a ponder. It's just a ponder. It's Steve Lutz, thank you. Thank you, Jason. I don't know if you noticed, but while this podcast was going on, I stole something of no small value. <laughs> Your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Monty Ashley, thank you. Your phone will now explode in a shower of confetti. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony Sindelar, thank you. Castle of Cagliostro is okay, but what if it was a, a moving castle? How, how old do you like that? Mm. Goodbye. <laughs> what if it wow. was a castle in the sky? How about that? Mm. Huh? You got a pun? Mm. There's got to be mm. a pun. Miyazaki loves castles. Uh, And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We will see you next goat.